You are listening to Scotland's Ear to the Ground, the podcast that brings you interviews with Scotland's finest composers. Your hosts are Aileen Sweeney and Ben Eames. Today we have the pleasure of chatting to Martin Suckling about his recent album This Departing Landscape, released with NMC Recordings. The album brings together four of his large-scale works performed by the BBC Philharmonic and the BBC SSO conducted by Ilan Volkov. Born in Glasgow, Martin has had his music performed by many of the world's leading orchestras and is currently a professor of composition at the University of York. Last year, Martin won the Dorico Award at the New Music Scotland Awards in 2020, sponsored by Steinberg. So we'll jump straight in. Uh, the first piece on the album is The White Road, a flute concerto for Catherine Bryan. Can you tell us um, a little bit about how this concerto came about and a little bit about the title? Sure. So, I mean, this might be the longest time between a piece being asked for and actually being <laughs> handed over. Because So Catherine and I... Our old friends, we used to play in NYO together, um, which is no longer ago than I care to remember. But um, so we were must have been sort of 15 at the time. And I was a violinist, but but I, I was probably a better composer. She asked me if I, when we were growing up and, and doing amazing things, I would write her a flute concerto. So I said, yeah, of course I'll write a flute concerto. And then 20 years went by and... Um, She's principal flautist at the RSNO and um, eventually they give in to her nagging and say, yeah, okay, you can get Martin to write you a concerto. <laughs> um, so that's kind of that's kind of how it went. So I had a very long gestation period, I guess. But, you know, it's always oh, it's so nice to write for friends and to write for old friends in particular. You know, you, there's something you, you can always sort of work through their personality when you're writing the piece and you sort of know how they relate to the instrument and it sort of it gives you such a head start when you're when you're writing for somebody that you know and um, the title is stolen from Edmund Duval who's a ceramic artist if you've not come across this stuff before you should look him up it's just beautiful um I worked with him in 2015 I think it was um for an exhibition that he was putting on at the Royal Academy called White and at that period all of his works were essentially shades of of white and his his ceramic art it's like ceramic art is not something I knew anything about before I met him as far as I was concerned ceramics was just like stuff you ate off and drank from it's really interesting to like sort of discover a a new art a new art form to to yourself because it just like expands your view of the world and to like start to understand how how they're constructing their particular aesthetic experience and Duval's uh, ceramic art is made out of these um, collections of individual vessels which are relatively similar to each other and though all have their own sort of like unique personality and he arranges them in these sort of cabinets of vitrines and so you have this sort of activity and space through these um, little individual objects which each in themselves are quite similar so in one sense it's very minimal but it's it's also richly suggestive and I it, it made me sort of wonder whether there was a way of sort of um 
approaching music in a similar sort of way where you have a sort of self-contained unit that you that you see in different forms and in different lights and is is closer together or further apart but 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 a piece of music that's built out of these little units and then arranged in a cabinet in a way and so I've sort of tried to kind of see if that was a way of writing things and actually I found it really helpful as a composer because usually I, I write too much stuff and I get bored quickly and I like and and the thing is like writing good stuff is really, really hard. So if you if you're writing this sort of music where you're constantly having to write more and more stuff and like to keep the quality levels up is hard and it's just exhausting. And then to approach it slightly differently, to have have this one thing that you recreate in lots and lots of different ways was really was really helpful. It sort of helped the focus and in my music and so yeah it was it was a piece sort of directly relating to to how he puts together his art and the title finally getting to the title the title the white road is the title of of one of his books um he's a writer as well as a ceramic artist and the white road is he's it's it's sort of it's kind of an autobiography is describing his journey to porcelain and also a sort of history of porcelain and and imagining this sort of I guess the white road as as compared to the silk road and it was the this sort of um, knowledge that gradually came over to Europe from from Asia this really valued knowledge so this sort of idea of a journey of a travelogue which in the flute concerto the, that that's sort of what happens you have this this little obsessive motif. Luke works within these different landscapes and different sorts of approaches to how time moves. Also, this kind of idea of a journey and your your flautist as the sort of narrator protagonist. So the opening of this piece predominantly uses string harmonics to create a very unique sound world. Could you tell us a little bit more about your approach in this section? I think the starting point was um, was the flute line, which I wrote on the violin, obviously. Um, <laughs> and 
Uh, and actually, one of the things I was sort of really interested in is um, creating an idea of cadence and like having phrases that actually go to a cadence. And the, the point of this one is that you, you start from an E and it always lands on a B. So it's always, in, a, in inverted commas, always going to the dominant. So it's always open. And I was then, I thought this sort of idea of, um, okay, I'd like to, like to always sort of harmonise this um, this arrival point and how to do that such that it is always the same but it's always different and that it's like it's like an amplification of the flute. So obviously string harmonics was the, the the timbre to go for and the way it works sort of I guess technically harmonically is and I think because I can't quite remember exactly how I did it now um, is full of microtones and it gets denser and denser and denser as it goes on the configuration for for the chords is actually always as though it's part of a B harmonic series, which in a sense sounds a bit like a B dominant seventh. And as it goes on, you're hearing more and more pictures of it. So to to the point where actually whatever the source pitches were, it's always going to be a B harmonic series. It's almost like a B harmonic series gradually coming into focus. I'm interested that you you started writing the the solo line, playing it yourself. At what point did you sort of put the violin down, or did you, or did you write quite a lot of it playing it yourself? I I write as much as I can playing myself. I used to I was like very well brought up um such as that like I had this idea that if you're a proper composer if you if you hear everything and you have to have it on there and and I'm pointing at my head you have to have it from your head and it goes directly onto the paper and only when you're finished do do you do you listen then and then I realized that's just totally daft it's not how I, I well I'm not very good at it that way and it's not how I relate to music so I used to work at all these systems um, that would sort of help me write my music and actually the one that works best is just hearing how it sounds so I will use anything I will u- I use a synthesizer to deal with my microtones um, I use Sibelius playback, I use the piano I use my violin, I sing I'll multi-track myself playing, I'll play the viola and and um, pitch shift it down an octave so that I've got the lower notes, I just got to be able to feel it. It's the only it's the only way I can be certain that it's right. So so in one sense I never put the instrument down. So so quite often I'll sort of come to a sense of the sound that I want through improvisation. It was the same at the beginning of the piano concerto as well, actually, when we get there. That was me sort of I had this idea of a feeling of the sound that I wanted, and I was throwing my hands all around the keyboard and making a big bashy sort of thing and I realized I'd sort of captured what that idea was I could then go to the paper and say okay what's that going to be compositionally and then I can't play it anymore because I'm not a good good enough pianist <laughs> but it's it's a more coherent version of the idea that I'd sort of reached through improvisation when I'm doing something that's just melodic and I can use the violin then then there's a little further in a sense that I can go in terms of actually figuring it out on that instrument but I think the key thing as well with them um, with the flute concerto, was just finding out what that first phrase was and how that worked, and then actually everything was just a um, was a variation on that first phrase, and I can't remember exactly 
whether I, I, I would sort of I'd maybe write something down on paper and say, okay, well, maybe it could go a bit around like this. And then I'd try it out and then I'd tweak it. Because um, it's, a, I mean, you, you know, you, you two are both performers and composers as well. So I don't know if, if this relates to sort of your experience, but like I have, um, I have me who's a composer who thinks one way, and then me who's a performer who like takes these notes. It's like, what the hell was this guy thinking? Except I can change it because it's the same person, and I get to have that sort of luxury of being like, actually, yeah, composer Martin was wrong, and <laughs> violinist Martin knows what what should be happening here. And and so I feel like it's quite a nice collaboration I've got going with myself. <laughs> I'm just imagining like two wee mini Martins on each shoulder. Yeah. <laughs> like... I can't think of anything worse. <laughs> so the percussion in this piece is quite unusual. Uh, the opening section features the use of a drum kit, which is not usually seen in a concerto. Uh, we also noticed in the score uh, the use of metal objects as opposed to any sort of specific percussion instrument. What role does percussion play throughout this piece? So I guess there are a few questions in there. I mean, w- one is that like I, I feel we shouldn't be ashamed of the stuff that we love. And um, just because it's a, a classical orchestra doesn't mean that you shouldn't have it. So I kind of want to sort of bring everything that I that I enjoy into my music, sort of where it works. Though having said that, of course, I mean, I think you're right as well that like we have particular associations with particular sounds and particular sounds in particular spaces such that there can be strange dissonances. So like, like you know, an electric guitar in a classical ensemble, like it, there are times where it works really well, but it's actually really difficult to make it work just because of, of our sort of associations with those things. And maybe it's the same with the drum kit. I don't know. And I can't remember exactly why I should. It was just the right instrument for this. And it's partly because what I wanted the, the kit to do was to like give this um give this sense of a downbeat, but a really sort of erratic downbeat. But because of the way we hear a, a bass drum, a kick drum in particular, it's like really hard not to hear it as a downbeat when it comes. So you have this sort of hi-hat. And wherever that comes, you hear it as a downbeat. Um, and so to have this sort of um, rhythmic but unpredictable background to this very sort of fluid flowing f- flute line as a counterpoint, um, uh, I, I like the combination. I like, um, I think one of the things that music can do really, really well that very few other art forms can actually do well is is genuine polyphony, having having two genuinely separate things going on at the same time, but but being understood together, that, that particular paradox. And and that's kind of what's happening actually, probably with the percussion sort of all the way all the way through. So the metal objects are actually just a different manifestation of the same thing there. And in a sense, like why metal objects rather than a particular percussion instrument? I'm because I don't know of a particular percussion instrument that that has um, a set of untuned metal objects. Is that it's? I mean, it's the other thing about sort of when we're hearing how these sorts of phrases work. It relates to the kind of cadence idea I was talking about. The important thing is not the pitches; is that is the difference and is the move from one thing to another and 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 the repetitions of those moves. So it didn't matter what the pitches of the metal objects were, just that they were different. And it's the sort of um slightly grotesqueness, it's the um the the roughness, um 
the the unpolishedness. Actually, maybe it's like that with the with the kit as well, where you have this very refined soloist and a real beauty to the line, sort of counterpointed with something which is which is much more which is much rawer. Um, much more raw. That's maybe better. <laughs> um, and and that's that's kind of that 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 that's the sort of sort of set of associations, I guess, that I was looking for. What were the metal objects? Were they just like bits of metal, or was it like a spoon? Or um... <laughs> <laughs> but it had to had have to have been a really big spoon. Yeah. I think um, it was. <laughs> It was a, I think it was a brake drum, um, a couple of like bits of metal tubing, that sort of thing. It may have been a spring. Um, I have things that you find lying around. Oh yeah, one of these sitting around, and um, oh, that doesn't make you see. <laughs> doesn't make a good noise. Let's try. Um, yeah, uh, you got to hang it right though, don't you? <laughs> Oh, there you go. That's lovely. That nice? So, you know, that that sort of thing. But, you know, what? I was just sort of thinking as you're talking about, about the kit there and you know that it's a kit. And I think actually that's, again, it's those sorts of associations because, because that sort of kit, you know, it says jazz maybe it says improvisation and that's also the world that the the flute is working in at that point and this sort of idea of faking that it's not being composed faking that it's like it's happening right there that sort of liveness of it I, I think is one of the sort of really special things that you know as a performer you do you do the same gig many times but each time you 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 sort of get your audience to believe that it's the first time it's ever happened and Sometimes music, I mean, maybe it's a thing that I struggle with myself. It can be, it can be sort of overcomposed. That it's sort of like too, it's too nicely there. Whereas actually, like to have that kind of fluidity, that edge of your seat, that you're not quite sure what's going to happen next because it's sort of actually really being created in the moment. That's that's the sort of musical experience that that I try to sort of build in. So moving on to the final section of the piece where we have a contrasting lullaby-like flute line over a very busy, bubbling wind section. What brought you to this very different sound world? So, um, well, I had a new baby, basically. So lullabies oh, were really? in my head. Yeah, oh. yeah. It was li- oh, that's was so cute. <laughs> written and I was meant to have it written before she was born and... Uh, I'm not sure I quite had it started before she was born. So basically this concerto was written in the first sort of two and a half, three months of, of, of my younger daughter's life. So, you know, these things have a habit of sort of seeping into into what you do. And I find, lo- well, actually, like lo- lots of my music has has lullabies in it, has, um, has songs. I think they, um, uh, I want... I want to write music that that touches people, I guess, and and I think a lullaby is a is a way, is is a type of music that we can all respond to, and from a sort of from a technical perspective, what was what was kind of fun about this section was that, um, so again, this relates to the piano concerto. It's a passacaglia. It's a spiral passacaglia, like the end of the piano concerto, just goes in the other direction. 
And and so it is literally a chord sequence of these two octave scales, which have this bit 15 notes across the two octaves, um, and all the 12 pitch classes are in there. So in, in one sense, it's, it's very not tonal, but they're all rooted by this these bass notes, which in a, a way relate to sort of harmonic series, basically. So they all meld together nicely. And the thing that I was sort of experimenting with was that, that um, if you write something which has a very straightforward rhythmic and, and phrasing structure, so it's very three, four, da, dee, 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 da, dee. It's you know it's and and it and it's two bars and two bars. You can kind of write any notes. It turns out, <laughs> um, and and it and it sort of works. I mean, if you've got, I guess, if you've got the configurations right, so that the harmonies sound um, sound sufficiently rich. And that was kind of the game that I was sort of playing. I was like, oh right, I've got this sequence, and all I need to do is carry on this shape. And that was kind of the sort of. And the the funny kind of magic of it for me. So like the lullaby aspect is just it's the way it's played, and it's the um, and it's the very straightforward rhythmic lilting quality of it. But um, but in terms of the pitches that are played, it's like the least tonal bit of the whole piece. Um, and I like I just sort of fundamentally, I think one of the things I really enjoy in music is this um is a is a tension between between the, what I'd call like the tonal feeling and something so if something is like totally tonal then it's maybe a bit ordinary in a sense it's sort of or it's it's just it's it's too easy it's too um I want something more but if something sort of asks you to hear tonally but also does stuff that contradicts it it creates what I think is a really interesting tension that you can work with and it works across different dimensions of music it could be phrasing it could be the harmony it could be the pitches and the melody and that's through lots of my music the sorts of things that I'm trying to play with I'm sort of like asking you to think tonally and to hear tonally when at the same time things aren't tonal and and that's where I think the interest lies. So the, the second piece on the album is Release, which was commissioned by the BBC SSO back in 2013. Um, this piece has three distinct sections, each representing a different type of impulse, as you put it. Um, what were the different impulses that you were implying and how did you approach sort of representing these through music? So one of the ways I like to think about music and how music moves is a sort of idea of a kind of imaginary an imaginary landscape where like we're 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 not just the the shape of things in the landscape but like the actual physical laws of how you move can can change so like if you know if you're if you were playing golf on the moon like what how would the ball move and what would happen if it suddenly fell into like a gravity pocket just randomly i think it's it's a teenage life of of science fiction and fantasy i am sort of somehow embedded in me and and so this piece was like so the opening gesture was like well what would happen what would happen if you like threw a ball really really hard but but there is no gravity so that it just carries on flying and how how might that sound 
and what would happen if like it, it so so almost like the idea of throwing a sound and then because the sound's not being damped down like you can make your own acoustics the sound starts to take on a life of its own it sort of mutates from the inside out so that's the in a sense the sort of basic idea for the for the whole piece you sort of throw something into this space and and see what happens First section is, is these yeah quite hard edged um, triads that go in again this sort of idea of like having a tonal thing, which then is is becomes not tonal in a way and that sort of interesting interference. So so that was the first section yeah you have a have a really straightforward chord which then like turns into this strange quiet microtonal thing which turns into to melodies and stuff which turns into bird song. And then the middle section was basically as uh, a melody, um, but a melody you played as though you've got the sustain pedal of the piano on, so that it turns out that actually what's being created is is a harmony. final section was like a series of um, exhalations um, the first one's sort of a really long one and, and sort of again imagining what happens to that sound in a, in a fictional space and, and how it could sort of live so you have this instead of the sort of hard edged impulse of the first section it's much more soft and with this long tail which sort of gradually and it kind of turns into a sort of heartbeat thing um, and eventually there's like some really really high melodies that start to that start to appear and that that gesture which is sort of sent out into this imaginary space gets gradually compacted and compacted so it becomes less like a sigh one becomes much more 
I realized today when I was listening to it again, the, the sort of idea was that at the end point of the piece, you could then immediately start the piece again because you just about got back to the, um, got back to the initial gesture. So moving on to the second concerto on this album, which is a piano concerto here performed by Tamara Stavanovich. This piece is inspired by a poem from Niall Campbell's collection, Moontide. How did this influence the piece? One of the hardest things about writing, I find, is, is just getting started. And because there are so many things a piece can be, and and you don't want to narrow down, but you've you've got to, and you've got to find a thing... Uh, a way of focusing it. Quite often for me, I find that there's something, there's some sort of um, object, some kind of grit that that allows me to sort of cut through the fog and have like one thing that I can see clearly and then everything can sort of, can sort of arrange itself around this fixed point. Um, and it sort of helps me understand what the piece is. Uh, and quite often it's, it's, poetry and and so for this piece in particular it was this poem called and this was how it started and the reason I love this poem um is I could do you want me to read you the poem yeah go for it okay here's the poem and this was how it started the bet began when someone told the singer he didn't know a thousand songs and his reply cheered was a ballad sung about the foolish bet the next praised wine and wine was poured and brought, and the third, sung towards the barmaid, earned her troubled kiss. Tally was chalked against the wall. Hours followed of step songs, dancing tunes, until at dawn he went through every rising hymnal, where the sun was a balanced coin, God's thumbprint on a tipping glass. Though not a thousand songs, it was enough for us to claim him victor. But on he went, day song, dusk song, and night, the boatmen's tunes, the Spanish elegies. He stood a hopeful groom through his full day of wedding hymns, the march, the kissing waltz and bedding. After this, he sang the spade and earth of burials, fog on his breath. Late on the fifth day, panicked by a silence, he clicked and whistled through the blackbird's song, the petrels and the wrens, and we allowed it. And then he sang the wave fall when there's moonlight, sang the black grain, it's bending in the wind, then sang the stars, and then, and then, and then. And I just, I I mean, I love Niall Campbell's poetry. Um, There's this sort of lyric, and, and, and like being, you know, being Scottish, but having lived more than half my life out of Scotland, um, I kind of have this sort of emigre's melancholy for for home, even though his home that he's talking about is in the, 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 the Outer Hebrides, which I've never visited. So it, it got, it, it hit something with me. And also was, um, it was, it, it managed to crystallise what I wanted this concerto to be, because it's the, this, this really important person 
there is not got an antagonistic relationship, but actually is is singing the world into being, and and I love that sort of sense. That I mean, it's kind of a creation myth, basically what he's written there, and um, and also the fact that there's just this huge amount of diversities there, like music as we know it, but also dancing, and then the natural world around and this magic of like you know the poet or that the singer sings a song and it happens so this this the this the magic of of music actually creating things into being and that's i think that's oh well that's how i want music to be so it, it fitted for me and you know the, the concerto doesn't like sort of it doesn't try to represent this but it tries to take um it tries to take the challenge that it says and to try and embrace the widest possible diversity in this this single thing which is why the concerto takes these really quite wildly different stylistic perspectives on what is essentially the same chunk of the material and the idea is always that that the piano throws something out into the orchestra and it takes on this this life of its own
So this brings us on to the to the very last track, which is the title piece, This Departing Landscape. Um, so do you want to tell us a wee bit about it and how you arrived at the concept for this piece and then also the album title? Sure. Um, so I thought this was a really difficult piece to write. Um, kind of given 20 minutes, do what you like with one of the best symphony orchestras in the country. And... Um, and it took me a really long time to figure out what I wanted to do because I can be super grouchy about lots of new music and sort of be like, ah, this isn't good enough or why isn't there more of that? And, and, and like, sort of like, you gotta, then you, you have the opportunity to do it yourself. And you're like, well, actually, instead of moaning about stuff like, what do you actually want? And, and I took quite a long time to figure out what I actually wanted because, like, the concertos in a way, lot easier to write because you you you've got this problem you've got this soloist and the ensemble and that relationship gives you something that you've got to deal with whereas like orchestra anything so i think i came i think a lot of it came back to sort of remembering how it was for me when i used to play in orchestras and and the experience of first playing in a really big orchestra and just the 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 sound that it makes that sheer weight and body and energy of sound and really loving that feeling of being part of that enormous thing which made me sort of wonder okay is there a way of like sort of capturing that kind of feeling that really high energy feeling and and sustaining that across 20 minutes so so that was one big part of it and then the other the other one was sort of coming across this um, phrase of Morton Feldman's and describing how how music sort of only exists in your memory because sort of as soon as it sounded, it's it's past and you're always sort of you your experience of it is always reflecting on what you've already seen, and so like music is like this landscape that's departing from you. As a similar thing, um, the Greeks. Um, conception of 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 you know we we think of uh, facing the future face the future and the past behind you whereas the the greek conception was that actually you you're looking back to the past and the future comes from behind you you don't see it until it's there and it and it goes past you and um my life during that time was basically on a train between manchester and york i lived in manchester and i taught in york and I would spend a great deal of time on this train going back and forth the Pennines and this sort of, it's all a bit prosaic sort of describing it like this, but, I, you know, sitting if you're sitting with your back to travel and you see this stuff whoosh past 
and then gradually sort of fade away. So it's those two two ideas that sort of um, music is working in the memory and the, and the, and the, the sort of distortions that memory brings, and and I sort of almost like a sort of challenge I was setting myself of how can I how can I create something that is really really energetic nonstop for for twenty minutes, um, and then the piece was just sort of well trying to solve that particular problem in in a suitably entertaining and interesting way. Yeah, I guess when you think of energetic music, you automatically think of music that's fast and loud. But when you were trying to keep the energy alive for such a a long period of time, did you feel that you had to consider the audience's perception more during the writing process? I think like music sort of tells its own story as it happens. And in terms of like, you know, keeping the energy up, well, the thing was like, if you've got fast, you don't need loud because fast is really, really energetic. So you can have fast and quiet. And um, and sort of playing with these sort of ideas that like, well, fast is a strange thing as well, because there's a point where fast suddenly becomes slow. You know, if you're, if you're playing loads and loads of really fast notes, the point where we sort of grasp them um, rather than as individual notes, but as a set, it suddenly the, the feeling becomes slow. And so you can create these these kind of oral illusions. So like the ideas of spirals um, are quite important in the piece and of things sort of constantly accelerating without actually getting faster. sort of a way of keeping the energy up so that's sort of one thing and a way that like there's two big sections to the piece and they take two quite different approaches to it in the first section the 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 trick was to just sort of as soon as you're maybe used to a particular idea to just cut to a completely different one and so you have these sort of the this sort of energy that's created by a music which never sort of sits still in one place so it's not necessarily the the energy and the music at that moment but the relationship of the different sections
then the second section is much more about about the loud side of things about but um but not loud and fast loud and slow and and how you can sort of maintain like a really long sustained sound i mean i guess you're an accordionist so you have like a really neat cheating way of doing it but like um you know wind players in an orchestra have a limited uh lung capacity and how you can how you can use your orchestra to to create that illusion of this 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 sort of constant evolving sound and and sort of using tricks by sort of increasing the pitch density and and, and alighting instruments and bringing noise components in and stuff like that to to sort of maintain this sort of yeah real feeling of high energy but through lots of different means So the album is available to stream or purchase online, so we'll put links in the description. Uh, to finish up, could you tell us a little bit more about what you've got coming up in 2021 for our listeners to watch out for? Sure. Well, um, aren't so many concerts going on at the moment for some reason, um, but uh, I'm going to be in the recording studio doing a disc for, for Delphian of, um, of chamber music, so I'm really looking forward to that. Um, and actually one of the pieces on that is going to be performed by Catherine Wren in the Art Making in the Anthropocene um, concert um, coming from, from, the, from the RCS. I think that's going to be in March. Um, so I'm really looking forward to that. And then the thing that I'm going to be uh, that I'm focusing on writing, um, the when it will be performed, I don't know, is, um, is a piece called The Wolf, the Duck and the Mouse. Uh, which is which is a it's a it's a children's book by um, Barnett and Classen and um, and it's great and I love it and and it's kind of like what happens after Peter and the Wolf in in a way so so yeah that's going to be a lot of fun.